Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gary Sheffer. Gary, how are you doing this week? Oh, great, Mike. Great to be back with you. And it's uh, that beautiful time of the year here in the Northeast. It's just uh, just gorgeous. So I'm in a good mood today. Well, good, 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 good. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you'll be in a good mood after the uh, the series is over. Oh, I know. You know, listen, um, you know, baseball, we have to do a whole show on baseball. Mike, you know, <laughs> how can the Mets win 101 games and only get a wild card? You know, I, I'm not a well, Mets fan, it, but they, they, they did get a stacked deck, though. They had yeah. three games at home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, anyway, on our menu today, Gary, we, we are going to discuss the future of ESG. Lately, the environmental, social and governance framework that uh, many large companies have been using to better understand the world and to better sustain their operations has come under a bit of attack by some conservative political forces. Gary, do you think ESG frameworks will survive all this? I'll give a short answer, which is yes. And it, the reason I say yes is the sentiment about this runs really hot in my classroom with the students. They are uh, determined that ESG will survive. So, so yes. Well, this summer, as you know, 19 state attorneys general wrote a letter to BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. They warned that BlackRock's environmental, social, and governance investment policies appear to involve, and I quote, rampant violations of what they called the sole interest rule, a principle which requires investment fiduciaries to act to maximize financial returns, not to promote social or political objectives. The governors of Florida and Texas also weighed in saying they do not want state pension funds invested with ESG-driven investments, nor with firms like BlackRock that have been supportive of what has become known as stakeholder capitalism. To help us sort this out a bit, today we've invited uh, Prudential Financial's Chief Communications Officer, Alan Sexton. Alan, prior to joining Prudential in 2018, had spent more than 20 years working for several public relations firms, including Ogilvy and Burson Marsteller, counseling them through uh, business transformations and public policy issues. Indeed, right before he joined Prudential, he was the chair of Burson's corporate in financial practice. Uh, he was hired into Prudential Financial to head its business communications and strategy in January 2018. Then in December of that year, the person who had been running Prudential's international business, Charlie Lowry, uh, became its new CEO. And the company's efforts to transform itself took center stage. And Alan had a hand in that and, and was elevated to CCO and that's the chief communications officer in 2020. So my hope is that we'll take some time to focus uh, a bit on that as well, along learning learning about Alan's career journey. Uh, Alan, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the crux. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be here with both of you um, and back speaking to you again. Uh, Mike and I worked a little bit alongside each other. We did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Alan's really one of the, the experts uh, in the space of ESG and in counseling businesses around transformations, business transformation. So, so Alan, in the midst of the recent criticism and concern, in your estimation, what does that future of ESG, ESG frameworks really look like? Well, um, first, it, it's, it's great that we're starting with the small questions. Uh, Mike, thanks for that. Right, right out of the gate. Good morning. Um, uh, yes, indeed. H happy Monday. Uh, so I, I, think, I think about ESG from a couple, on a couple of uh, different levels. First of all, it's remarkable what um, 
how, what complexity three little letters uh, and how much debate three little letters can provoke. Yeah. Um, ESG is obviously very much in the news at the moment. But uh, going back to what Gary was saying a second ago, what he was uh, about what he was hearing from his students, I think the underlying challenges and issues that make up ultimately ESG that are that are summarized those three little letters, environmental challenges, particularly around climate, um, socioeconomic issues, questions of social justice, of human rights. Uh, and of course, governance, which, by the way, the G doesn't get a lot of play these days in ESG, but it's so important, uh, particularly we yeah. know we all know about the absence of trust, particularly in big institutions. Agreed. And I have a suspicion that actually the G is going to become more important again. We'll move to the foreground in the future. But so those three areas, those issue areas are not going anywhere. Just look at the last few weeks, the hurricanes, uh, Fiona and Ian that that hammered. Puerto Rico and then Florida and the Carolinas, um, the wildfires and drought in the Western uh, states of the United States, the, the heat waves uh, this past summer in Europe and in Asia, um, as well as huge flooding in, on both of those continents. Um, none of that's going anywhere. Uh, those issues looked set, certain to become even more pronounced. And then um, at the same time, I think the expectations of corporations to be active participants actively engaged in those issues i don't think that the, those expectations are doing anything but increasing over time you, you know one of the things is interesting about that explanation too i mean here you are working inside of an insurance company and one of the big roles for insurance is to help manage risks and in some vein isn't that what companies are, in a sense, doing when they talk about ESG? Is it talking about how do they manage over time uh, future risk? Yeah, very much, uh, very much. I, I was in Zurich a couple of weeks ago for a conversation among insurance company CCOs, mm -hmm. and it was very interesting to see and hear from my colleagues in Europe. Again, communications leaders from, from some of the world's largest insurance companies and reinsurers and that is indeed the way um, they are talking about it. That there, we spoke actually with one reinsurer CEO who said, from his perspective, climate is not political, which is, if you made that statement in the States, it, people- They throw uh, things at you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perhaps not, quite, not being quite realistic or plugged in. But what he meant was um, climate is accepted science and fact and something that the reinsurance industry, as well as the insurance industry in Europe, has been very focused on, not for a couple of years, for more than 15 yeah. years. Some of those uh, large corporations started to look at the risks posed to their portfolios by climate change, by environmental issues, and made commitments more than a decade ago, in some cases almost two decades ago, because they view it as part of their risk management framework. And so we think about it in a very, through a very similar lens, both in our insurance business as well as in our investing business. ESG, flawed as the frameworks are today, and that's where a lot of the debate is, what, what's truly measurable, what's legitimate, what's, what's performance-based, mm -hmm. what's performative. I think that mm -hmm. debate's going to rage on. Yeah. But we, we use ESG uh, frameworks as a way to gauge the risks to our business and to our clients' businesses. Um, so that, yes, Mike, that's very much how we, how we view it. Um, we also see there being a, a real prerogative when it comes to climate change. And again, in, in the same conversation uh, with my colleagues in, in Europe, it was very interesting. I think there's a bit of a sense that Americans are out on a limb on this, that you know this, this country doesn't take climate seriously and people don't quote unquote get it. And I think that's a misperception. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's changed, views have changed a lot. And I listened to a, a very interesting talk by a professor from uh, the Columbia uh, School. Um, I'm going to get this wrong. There's a, they have a program uh, around communicating climate change issues. Yes. Uh, and he spoke very articulately and provided uh, a lot of data that showed a majority, the vast majority, in fact, of Americans do believe climate change is a real thing. 
they do believe that humans play a role in it, that it's getting worse and that, that it needs to be addressed. And so I, I think that's, that's quite a change from maybe five years ago. And so we're very focused on that too. Uh, again, just thinking about what's happening on our Southern shores, uh, on the West coast of the U S this has become climate has become real, very real, very fast for a lot of people. Even folks who a few years ago might have been might have thought of themselves as skeptics. And I think at this point, the focus is turning to what are we going to do about it and how quickly are we going to do it? Yeah. Well, you know, Mike and Alan, you both put your finger on a couple of things that are really important to this discussion of ESG. One, Alan, is this idea that you look at it as a framework for risk. And that makes your role more predictive, right, for Prudential and, and other CEOs who might look at it the same way. In other words, what's what are we going to be facing, not just being reactive and what, right. what's already happened, but two, the rating systems are broken for ESG investment. The, you know, in some cases, uh, these rating systems reward reduction of financial risk, not so much reduction or improvement. Let's let's look at it from a positive way of environmental performance um, for some of these rating agencies. Not all. Some some do a good job of it. And and if we're going to build trust, we really have to take a look as companies, uh, take a look at those rating systems for ESG investment. It's it's the consistency. It's the lack of consistency that's so difficult for a yes. for a company like ours, as well as lots of other big businesses to manage. You're, you're completely right, Gary. It's it's very choppy. Uh, you go to one rating agency, they'll put out a, 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 a series of ratings. You go to the next one, yeah. and their ratings differ significantly enough that it introduces um, question marks about the legitimacy, the accuracy of the ratings themselves. And that, that is the environment in which we're operating at the moment is there, no one's quite sure where the goalposts are. Mm -hmm. And we need to get to a place where there's greater certainty, particularly over the long term. And we can, as, as you just pointed out, this is, not, this is not a today or a tomorrow thing. This is about what happens over the next 10, 20, 30 years. That's what's really going to matter. And so we need those kinds of long-term frameworks to plan and invest, and, and invest accordingly. So I'm, I'm going to, uh, Alan, put you on the spot here, because that's what we do on the crux, uh, is put people on the spot. <laughs> so when, when you were at Burst and Marsteller with, with Mike, among the your major clients were Accenture, Bank of America, even the Business Roundtable, all participating themselves in ESG framework or sort of a realignment of capitalism in some ways, had they called you up in the middle of all of this ESG backlash, Alan, what might you have encouraged them to say or do? It's a great question. In short, I would have encouraged them to stay together, stick to their convictions, and focus on outcomes. Let me say a little bit more about what I mean. In an environment where businesses used to have friends on both sides of the aisle, many of them, but that and, and, and in an environment which that really ha doesn't exist anymore, particularly larger businesses which have come under fire from both ends of the political spectrum on a fairly regular basis over the last few years, uh, where friends are in short supply in in the political <laughs> world, I think it's it's become increasingly important that where business-minded where business organizations and leaders can come together uh, in solidarity and stick together, it can be enormously powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, I think one of the worrying things more recently, um, uh, and you mentioned one of, the, one of the world's largest asset managers, it, it's troublesome, it's concerning when you see an individual brand or company out there fighting a fight by themselves, particularly on these issues, again, which affect pretty much any large organization in the world. And so I think that's so important for 
the, the BRT for business, for, for the business community to get together, see what they can agree on, stick to it. And similarly, if you have convictions, a lot of those, a lot of the BRT companies have articulated their corporate purpose and are deeply invested in bringing it to life. Right. Uh, particularly in this environment, again, where people don't know where to turn in terms of trusted leaders. I think it becomes even more important to stick to your guns and, and stick to your convictions. And then, which is also associated with the third thing, focus on outcomes. You know, the organizations like ours, large businesses do an enormous amount of good uh, at the community level, at the national level, at the international level. They're deeply invested in engaging with stakeholders. Um, and I think the more that they can focus on those things that are uncontroversial, mm -hmm. uh, the places where they're delivering for their stakeholders that, that don't produce a lot of noise and light and heat, but they're, that are taking place on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. I, I think talk more about those things, show more about those things um, to demonstrate to all of their stakeholders the value that they are already delivering on a daily basis. That would be, that would be the advice. Mm-hmm. It's it's that that's really well said. I love the outcomes part of that, Alan. And I think today Fortune has its I forget what they call it now, the fifty companies that are changing the world. And you look at some of the things that, that are being done yeah. by these companies, it's really extraordinary. They're not perfect enterprises, of course. N no one is or nothing is, but really they're doing extraordinary things across the globe, around the globe, to help stakeholders and help society. And you mentioned something, you know, a word that uh, trust here. It's it's so f funny to look at or, or somewhat strange and perplexing to look at things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, where they say they want companies to help solve big problems. But uh, p respondents also say they don't want business leaders involved in politics. So it's a it's a huge challenge for these leaders to figure out where they should make investments and where they should make uh, statements. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And, and, but I love the idea of sticking with your guns, find out what you believe in or determine what you believe in and yeah. find and some friends and stick to it. I think that will res. I think that does resonate with people today more than ever in a world that's, uh, I read this great paper earlier this year by um, a couple of guys from Deloitte they talked about us living in the age of continuous discontinuity. It was a, it's, a, it's a great read. It's, it's a quick read, like a 15-minute read, really good. Um, and I think in that environment, in that kind of landscape where, again, people are so unsure and uncertain about the future, in practically every aspect of life, like look at what we've just come through over the past couple of years. People just can't imagine what's going to come next, but they, they have a sense that something's going to, going to um, gonna happen. Black swans sort of becoming just regular swans. Um, <laughs> I, I think that businesses really can, can be, uh, and we see this in the trust barometer too, where, where employers are the most trusted institution at this point. Do, do you have a sense in the mix of all of this that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about trust and risk, but do you, do you think that the in business or in society are risk perceptions and tolerances changing in the mix of all of this? I think people have always been terrible about judging uh, risk. <laughs> I think institutions are better, but still flawed. We have a lot of different systems and a lot of different, a, a lot of expertise in managing risk, and we don't always get it right. But my, my my sense is we're so my sense is, is that we're at we're, we're at an interesting inflection point where you've got ESG has this heightened sensitivity and from all corners I mean uh, you've got uh, it, it's it's now the subject that uh, companies have with investor analysts with some of the biggest houses that that was not the case two decades ago and. It, and because of what we've gone through, an increasing number of natural disaster events add on to it what we just went through in terms of the pandemic. 
it feels as though the the complication or one of the challenges and one of the fears is goes to this heart of maybe what we're experiencing too is uh, a different order of magnitude around what's our perception of risk and what's really our appetite or tolerance for risk longer term. Yeah, I do. I do think that's true. I think one of the things that the pandemic really laid bare is something that was talked about for years, but I'm not sure really came home to people until we faced what we faced over the last couple of years, which is the level of interconnectedness around the world. You know, it, this is a backlash against globalization, which started before the pandemic, in many ways has been accelerated by it, I think because it became so obvious that everything is connected to everything else. And that's, that's really true. You still see that the, the impact from, of decisions that were made a couple of years ago still rippling through our supply chain. We, we just uh, did a bit of a house renovation in our home and um, furniture arrives at random, on, at random times of the day on different days with, with no warning. You have no idea. And when you call the suppliers to ask them what's going on, they basically admit, we don't know. We don't know when it's going to arrive. You just have to cross your fingers that it does, and, and it probably will at some point. <laughs> and so that that uh, that project was just was a lesson in the disruption that's happened over the past couple of years. So I think that level of interconnectedness, you have companies like ours thinking much less linearly and much more in terms of ecosystems. Because uh, that's the way the world now works. We we and we even think about that in terms of uh, our business model. Um, how can we partner up with other organizations? Maybe we bring the audience, we bring the customers, they bring the products, or we manufacture the products, and they supply the distribution mechanism, or we build the digital platform, and we get a whole bunch of other partners uh, who sell their products. And we benefit from fees as a result of whatever gets sold. And I think that's the way large organizations also are starting to think more about risk. It's the interconnectedness of all of these macro risks uh, and how to manage them over the long term. Um, and I think the, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the next COP meeting where I think um, the timelines may shrink even further. You know, a, a lot of us have made, including Prudential, have made um, net zero commitments. Uh, we, we made ours. And I, I think we're going to see timelines shorten maybe by as much as a decade, where it's one thing to be committed to 2050, but really now the question becomes, how do you get there by, let's say, the end of the 2030s? Um, so I think... I, and then, Mike, back to your question, how do you manage all of the associated risks and at the same time driving performance Yes. Um, and driving returns for our shareholders? I think Prue is a very practical company and understands that sustainability requires us to, over the long term, to continue to return capital to our shareholders to demonstrate differentiated performance. And if we do that, we get more of a license to do some of the other things. If we don't, um, people stop listening to us. It's it, it, it's so interesting, the your comment about interconnectedness and complexity, and and how you communicate actually in those periods. I one of the things I took away from the global financial crisis back in. 2008 to 10, really, for GE, where I worked, was you can't speak with such certainty <laughs> as you did in the past to investors and to analysts and to your own people. And so uh, to your point about when the chairs arrive, there's no, there might not be any certainty. And that's true for right. business writ large as well, too. And I want to come back to how, how Prudential talks about ESG and, and took a look at your 2021 ESG report, impressive. And your CEO, Charlie Lowry, ties um, ESG and the importance of ESG to a vision to become a global leader in expanding access to investing, insurance, and retirement security 
in the letter that accompanies the report. So how important is it to tie ESG goals to what you just said, returning capital to investors, to business success? And I think we're still, despite all of what we've talked about, people think they that might be divergent. Those might be divergent goals. Yeah, I think we think they need not be. And in fact, it's vital that the two are aligned. Over time, I can see a world where, in, in the not too distant future, where we stop talking about ESG entirely because it becomes so integrated and embedded in business models. And you see that in some companies. It's interesting. Nike has gone on an interesting journey in this respect where there, it used to have a CSR team. This is very broadly speaking. It went from being corporate social responsibility to being more ESG focused and then basically got blended in with the business and became really a catalyst a driver of innovation within the businesses. And I think that's that's the right kind of direction. That's the kind of destination mm-hmm. for a company like, like ours. It becomes just part of what we do, part of how we operate. Prudential back in just before the pandemic in 2019, the board adopted a multi-stakeholder framework. So it was ahead of the, the, the BRT's um, declaration by a little bit. You know, Prue's always been a company that thinks about its role in society. It was a mutual company for most of its life. Prue's coming up on 150 years old, but we've only been a publicly traded company since 2001. Um, in fact, Prue's IPO was the first IPO after 9 11. Um, and so I think the company, in its DNA, understands uh, that. It needs, it, it takes very seriously the responsibility to write checks after the current administrations, leadership, generations have gone. Like we're still writing checks to people who bought policies or annuities from us a hundred years ago, or po- whose, whose policies were bought by other people for them a hundred years ago. <laughs> wow. And so we really think intergenerationally and have to, as does our industry. Um, and so the commitments we make today, and I think this is one of the things, you know, this is a very uh, fast cycle world that we work in uh, and live in, uh, and particularly for large publicly traded companies who pr- face that pressure every quarter. One of the great things about Peru is that it, it manages those pressures and at the same time thinks in decades. Um, and so as a result, we have to think about those very long tail risks. One of those is environmental or is climate. And to think through not just about the decisions we need to make over the next year, two, three years, but how are we positioning the company to serve policyholders, investors, other stakeholders over the really long term, which is why it's so important that it's aligned with business strategy mm-hmm. Um, and with the, the businesses, the company's long-term objectives. Well, in fact, I found it interesting that uh, uh, in the, that ESG report, it's, uh, you know, there are six core investing principles uh, that are called out um, and in ways that are about the alignment of ESG with business goals. I think it was uh, you had ESG integration, climate action, sustainable financing, active ownership, investment restrictions, including no new uh, direct investments in coal, or for that matter, even in controversial weapons, and then impact investments. Tell us a little bit more about that and why uh, Pru sees this as important. Well, I, I, I go back to what I, I mentioned a couple of minutes ago in terms of our view of, of uh, risk and of our, our duty, our, our fiduciary duty to our clients, to our shareholders, to our other stakeholders to deliver returns, sustainable returns, and at the same time, balancing that duty of responsibility with all of our other stakeholders. Um, and ensuring that that the businesses around doing business 50, 100, 150 years from now. And so um, 
when it comes to, you know, we are both obviously a, a big asset manager and also a big investor or general account um, is a, a very large investor, institutional investor in its own right. Um, and so it uses those principles as it looks to make the best use of the capital that it, that's given to us, lent to us by our customers. Um, and it is, again, that balance of, of, it's really about achieving sustainable returns over the long term. That's, that's what we are focused on. Um, and again, uh, both in terms of um, what Prue does as, as an investor, um, as an institutional investor, as well as what we do through our asset management business, PGM around the world for, uh, for their clients. You know, I was talking to Roger Bolton from the Page Society in my class at Boston University a couple of weeks ago, and um, he says this topic, ESG, is still top of mind for CCOs that he uh, talks with. And of course, Roger talks uh, as, an, as a group of CCOs, talks with them all the time. And one of the issues that everyone is still wrestling with is when to speak and when not to speak on issues. and and we were talking about building processes and understanding core values and all of that um, to determine when you do this. H how, does, how does Prudential think about its voice, its public voice on social issues, Alan? Well, since, uh, since I joined Peru and, and since I took this role, we've, we've put in place um, several things to help guide decision-making by our leadership, including up to and including Charlie Lowry, our CEO and chairman. There are really three measures we use now um, to gauge what we should do and or say on issues that, that um, uh, on, on societal issues particularly. Um, we put in place a set of criteria that enables us to, to be consistent in the way that we evaluate those issues. Um, relative to the, to the company's interests and our, rec our reputation, things like how aligned is the issue with our corporate purpose? What sort of impact does it have on our business as employees? What's our track record? Do we have a track record on the issue? Exactly, yeah. And, and, and then what are our stakeholders' expectations? Do they expect us to speak out on this? Do they expect us not to speak out uh, or to do something? So that's the first thing is, is that set of criteria, which, which again, we use to, to drive, to help inform decision-making, but make sure that we're being consistent over time. The second is a diagnostic tool, uh, which we worked with one of our agency partners to develop. Um, and it specifically helps to guide communications, decision-making and our, and our communication strategy. Um, it's, it's deceptively simple. It asks just a few questions of us and we have to provide uh, responses. Um, the back end uh, is much more complicated because it involves potentially thousands of different choices about the way we answer those questions. So it took a lot of investment in the upfront to um, to build it and create it and make sure that it worked. But it's 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 now awesome. It, it's enormously helpful because it is a very simple and straightforward tool. We can use it on a day to day basis. In fact, at some in some points. On some issues, we've used it more than once a day as the issue has evolved. Um, and then the wow. third thing is we, we formed a societal issues advisory group. Um, and it's, it's designed to represent the voices and perspectives of our most important stakeholders, um, customers, clients, employees, regulators, policymakers, uh, investors, shareholders, community leaders, and partners. And so we have a team that sits around a table that, that is, is charged with bringing those perspectives and representing our different stakeholders. Um, and so far, the combination of those three has been, I would say, to me at least, enormously helpful. Um, I, I think there have been so many places where we could have put big feet in the wrong uh, in the wrong spot mm -hmm. over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think uh, it has really helped us navigate things in a way that's very authentic to Prue and to our purpose. Uh, and at the same time, that's, that's practical. Uh, and that's meant that we've been able to make decisions quickly when needed uh, and, and make smart 
uh, well-informed recommendations to our, our CEO and his executive team. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Alan, could you tell us uh, in the past year or two years, what's something that Prue has taken a position on publicly? Sure. We took a position in favor of voting rights um, a couple of times over the last several years, mm-hmm. including more recently when it has become an increasing, after it, it had become an increasingly politicized stance, which, and it's one of those things, mm-hmm. you know, the, if you think back five years, would you have said, well, voting would become one of those hot, hot button issues where folks from, from different political persuasions would be criticizing you for speaking out and saying, what we believe in is to enable our employees to fully participate in the democratic process. And here we are. And it was very, it's been very interesting. The responses, um, Gary, you, you were talking about you know, how do CEOs navigate this? People want you to speak out. And then when you speak out and they don't disagree with you, they sort of don't want you to speak out anymore. <laughs> um, so, so any, anyway, we, we, we have spoken out on that. we, um, in 2020, after the, the murder of George Floyd, the company made first inside made nine commitments to advance uh, racial equity and then publicly made them about a month later. Uh, what we wanted to do was engage our employees first in a conversation. In fact, more than 7,000 of them engaged in uh, conversations that, that, that spanned uh, several months over that summer. And what they culminate, those conversations really help to inform the positions that the company took and the actions that the company has taken. And I think that's the thing to me is it's been a very interesting journey for me helping to, to cancel the, the firm's leadership. I think we've gone from a place where the question is, the first question was often, what do we say to much more the focus being on what are we going to do? Or what are we doing? Exactly. And then what are we going to say about that if indeed we are going to do something or already or are already engaged? And I think we've also become more discerning about there are times when we really want to engage our workforce on issues that they care deeply about. But that doesn't necessarily mean everybody else, uh, all of our stakeholders outside the company want or expect to hear from us. Uh, so I think we, we've we've become more... Um, targeted in our engagement and our and, and in some of our communications, mm-hmm. um, part of it too is I definitely think there is a certain amount of fatigue around us, particularly among business leaders. Um, they weren't. <laughs> there was nowhere to go to school when they were cutting their teeth as business leaders that would have. Prepared. It's a point I make all yeah. the time, Alan. Yes. That, that yeah. where do you go to get trained on the on this? I, I am encouraged, though, I, I, it's, it, it, to see so many business schools and consulting groups understand that, that we are living at a time when the so-called soft skills have become even more prized than the technical skills of, that, that were prized in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that's a, that's a great thing to see. Uh, I think it, it, it really will help future CCOs and communications teams do a better job of engaging business leaders again on, on do first talk later um, and on getting us out of this trap of, of things being viewed as communications problems when, as, as the great Jody Powell once said, you know, sometimes you've got a PR problem. Sometimes you've just got a problem. <laughs> well, so you know, you know, and, and, and what's fascinating is, you know, it's not like these are all just standalones all all by themselves, because at the same time you're running a business. That's right. And at 
at, at, at Prudential, as you know, you, so Charlie Lowry comes in like about, it'll be, I guess it'll be four years uh, ago, come December. And, and you're there and this stuff is just nascent and all of a sudden you're also involved in a big business you know transition transformation effort and trying to keep in mind that you know this company that you're in as as you said you know it was previously a mutual company but not just a mutual company a lot of I, I think a lot of the culture was very traditional if i may say uh so now you're this publicly traded company now you're you're trying to enhance more in terms of digital platforms you're trying to make the company more nimble more agile uh, and literally transforming the company while all this other stuff is going on. So how has that journey been? And as a chief communications officer, uh, what have you or your team had to focus on in order to enable that new corporate direction and mindset? Yeah. Big questions. More, more really easy, simple um, questions. <laughs> um, how, do you, how do you take a 148-year-old company and Transformers? One of the first challenges was how do we create a sense of urgency around this? And uh, Charlie talks about this too, that he recognized pretty quickly after he took the helm that what he needed to do is light a fire under the organization and get it to understand that even if, you, even if employees couldn't feel it on a day-to-day -day basis, we needed to really take action with urgency. And so that was one of the first things we needed to work together on was to create that sense of, if not a burning platform, a pretty hot platform um, that would get the company on board with the idea that we really needed to change. And as you point out, Mike, you know we're in, we're we're a, we're a pretty risk averse company by nature. Um, we've not been publicly traded for that long. Our roots go back way further, um, and we're in a conservative industry. We're an industry that's rewarded for stability and security and, and resilience over a long time, as, as I, I spoke about earlier. So the first stage in the transformation was really getting employees to understand that there was a, a real need, a pressing need for us to change and to change quickly, in fact, much more quickly than even the fastest change, I would say, at the company uh, in, the, in, in the 20 years before that. Um, I think over the past four years, we've probably jammed in about a decade of change. And we're really in the first act of what I, my sense is probably a, we're, we're at the end of the first act of a three act play. So it's probably gonna be a, um, a process that takes place over about 10 years. Um, so the first thing was to, was to communicate that sense of urgency, talk about the external environment, changing customer and client needs, how technology was driving change, what our competitors were doing. Um, Prue, you know, like maybe, maybe many former mutuals, had a bit of a, an insular way of thinking. So it was really about bringing the outside world in and helping people understand um, that there were all of the exogenous forces that were changing, that, that were putting new pressures and challenges in front of us, and also then exciting people about the opportunity. That was the next stage. It was, it was really about establishing the need and then giving people a sense of empowerment that they could really own the change across the firm and become catalysts for change in their own right. And so we went through a process of engaging employees to become initiative owners um, and to build these basically little um, business, uh, business plans um, and to make the case for the company to invest in innovation, in change, in product development, in changing the way we work and think. Um, and then more recently, it has been about helping employees understand, giving employees a sense of forward momentum which is, Gary, you talked about that, uh, you talked about this, you know, in a, in a very 
in, in a state of continuous discontinuity, how do you do that? How do you give people a sense of things have improved between last quarter and this quarter, between last year and this year? Exactly. Uh, and that's, pro that's probably the most challenging piece so far because transformation of a, of a hundred and almost 50 year company that's global um, with 45,000 employees, it's not something that happens overnight. It's not even something that happens over four years. And so we have tried to tell very concrete, tangible stories, often about things that are relatively small to help employees understand that things are changing and we are making progress and even if they can't touch it and feel it, all of them on a day-to-day -day basis, we can at least help them imagine it through the stories of, of the progress that their colleagues are driving. So we've been doing more, more communications of late focused on that. And then of course, too, on our growth strategy moving forward, which is focused on investing in growth businesses and markets, delivering industry-leading customer experiences to our customers and clients, and then on driving innovation, creating the next generation of financial products and solutions. And so we're, it, there's a seasonality almost to transformation where you, where you sort of go through cycles over a long period and always have to anticipate where you need to take things next to keep people on board yes. and motivated. And, and Alan, would you say, you know, I've learned recently, really, that transformation is different than change management. Yeah. Right. It's bigger. It's broader. How would you describe what does Prudential want to be at the end of this transformation? Is it about growth? Is it about products? Is it, what is it? It's it's ultimately about the about long term sustained growth. Mm -hmm. Earlier this year, we articulated with the with Charlie and the executive leadership team. We articulated a, a new vision to become, and Mike mentioned this at the, at the top of our conversation, to become a global leader in investing insurance and retirement security. That's, that's really where we, want to get, where we want to get to as an enterprise. We're a company that's made up of a series of businesses that used to be fairly loosely connected. And then they, they over the past few years, have, have been brought into uh, the way we would describe it, a greater alignment. That, that word alignment covers a multitude of sins. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite and least favorite words in the corporate world. Um, and, and I think the future is about the intersection of those different areas. It's the intersection of investing and insurance and retirement and secu retirement security. It's about how do we leverage, you know, more than a century of expertise managing risk, uh, managing liabilities and marry that up with our asset management or capital allocation expertise and make the two things work together as a flywheel. That's really where we need to get to. And so uh, along to get there, we have to become much more agile and nimble. We, we have to become much more comfortable with the uncertainty, with the, with the rapid with the, with the speeding up of the cycles of innovation that are required because the, because the world changes around us, even the world of insurance changes around us all the time. And we're, you know, we're coming out of two years of, uh, that were very financially challenging for a multitude of reasons, for individuals, for organizations, for countries. And it seems to me that we're about to head into a whole new environment of financial challenges. Lots and lots of obviously of talk about, soft landings or hard recessions um the you know the the very interesting to see how geopolitical events are playing into into things um some of the uh, some of the events even in the uk just recently uh, again shows i think the precarity um the fragility in in of still institutions yeah, and, of institutions right. that and, we take for granted and norms um, you, we just can't take them for granted. So here we are. What are we? We're uh, 14 years, 13 years out of the global financial crisis. And, and my, my reading of the tea leaves, and I am not a, um, I'm not an expert on this, but my reading of the tea leaves is that the UK pension system came scarily close to, to collapsing. Exactly. Because of a decision made by 
a PM, a prime minister had only been in office for literally a few days. Well, well said. Well said about your transformation. Really um, simplistic. And I can see a real clear purpose and focus for that. Um, you know, we always struggle with clarity in these transformations yeah. and wh where we want to be. And you said it very well. So, Alan, let's let's turn this around a little bit and, and turn the light more on, on, on you and your career. You know, when we first met, I had spent my whole life pretty much on the client side. You'd spent almost your entire life on the agency side. Now that you're on the client side, what's different? You know, are, are there any new insights that you have about the, about what it is you do? So the last four years at Peru and the last year and a half or so as CCO have, have just been one enormous learning journey for me, which has been amazing. In some ways, the CCO role is, is surprisingly not that different from the senior roles I, I, I played within the agency world. You know, over time you become, you do less of the doing and you do more of the leading and advising. And the same is true in the CCO role in spades. Uh, it's just, it's, it's even more so. So in some ways, I got a lot of good, great advice before I made the leap. And it was a real leap for both Peru and, and me into the unknown. As it, as it turns out, I think it's, it's worked out for both of us for the most part. But I, I think in some ways it, it was surprising how similar it was. Yeah. Yeah. Big differences. There are big differences, though. To me, the, the, you know, you go from the, on the agency side, you, you measure your, what you're doing in quarter hour increments. Yeah. And so there's a, which is a, which is a big pain. If you talk to any agency person, that's the thing they hate the most about the agency world, but it does, right. um, it, it does mean that you have to be very disciplined about the way that you spend your time. And one of the biggest challenges in house is, is it's a, it's a blank check. If you let us. Um, your time is limitless. Of course, yeah. that's not that's not true. But prioritizing, working out where you yeah. can create deli and deliver the greatest value as a CCO uh -huh. is something that you have to actively work on. Because the al the, the alternative is you end up becoming an email answering machine, um, or you or you become a you become a perpetual meeting participant. <laughs> Those two things are really easy to find yourself in, um, in house in my experience. And so really being disciplined about taking a step back and working at how am I spending my time and am I spending my time on the right things? Um, and instilling that same sense of discipline that you have to have in the agency side, well, because you, you have to send an invoice to, one, to, your, to your client to charge them for the time yeah. that you spend. I think the, there are a couple of other things. One is agency life is sort of a series of sprints. You know, you have a, you have a client calls you up and said, I, 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 I need this. The answer when you ask when is yesterday or last night, earlier this morning before I called you. Mm -hmm. And so whether it's big projects that last a year or a couple of years or the many, many assignments that come in and you've got a week or a couple of weeks or a month, you're going through a series of sprints and you have that sense of accomplishment at the end of whatever it is that you're doing, which kind of helps you fire you up for the next sprint. In an in-house role, it is very different. It's very much an endurance race. It's, it's a marathon and I think uh, understanding, working at when you, when you need to turn up the gas, when you need to create a sense of urgency, within yourself as well as across your team uh, and discerning the difference between those times and the times when you need to do the opposite, where you need to not wind people up and get people excited, where you need to be the calming presence. That's super, super important and something I'm still learning to do. Uh, I think that's the, those are, those are a couple of the biggest differences I've noticed. That's yeah. really well said. That's really well said. Yeah, it, it, and, and it's interesting. I don't think they. I don't think Prue was taking much of a chance. I mean, you're a very analytical guy. You're a very creative one, I'm, and I'm sure they've gotten to know you as I got to know you in the sense that, you know, you've got expertise across a lot of different 
disciplines that we think of as being a part of uh, of a public relations career from business to media relations to public policy. Um, I think it would be good for you to share with the audience as to how did you get into this crazy business to begin with? I, I, I know you, you'd grown up in, in, in Ireland and you, you went to school both in Ireland and in Scotland. T tell us a little bit about uh, why public relations, why communications? Well, if I'm completely honest, Mike, I kind of fell into this profession. Um, <laughs> the good news is, or, or some solace for me, is I've met so many amazing practitioners who have admitted to me that they too have sort of, at the beginning of their careers, kind of <laughs> fell into it, as opposed to deciding to jump into it. I was a history and political science student uh, as an undergrad, and then I studied international politics uh, for my master's in St. Andrews, actually with a specialism in terrorism and liberal democracy. It was a very interesting year. It um, kind of fits with today, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's so funny. I graduated from St. Andrews in 1990, 1997. And as it turns out, and at the time, it was a, I did the degree because I was fascinated by the topic. I didn't ever think that I would be able to apply it in a, in a professional uh, capacity. And th there, there again, you know, 9-11 was really around the corner. And so a lot of the professors who were very much academics when I, when I knew them, just a few years later were pressed into service by uh, their own government, by the American government. Um, they had expertise on some of these groups that, you know, a lot of people in senior government had never even heard of. So um, I, missed, I missed all of that. Uh, if I graduated maybe a few years later, I, I might have indeed uh, been able to use what I learned in, in my master's very much in a hands-on way. So politics have, has always been, the, the blend of history and politics has always been in my blood. My grandfather, actually my, my, my mom's dad was a professor of Irish history at Trinity College where I, where I went and did my undergrad. So I, I feel like it's always been in my, in my bones. Um, hmm. I, I wanted to get involved in politics, never as an elected official, never. Uh, I have no ambition, no political ambitions. <laughs> But I did want to get, I did want to get into to, to public policy and political debate behind the scenes. And so I try to do that re wildly unsuccessfully in Ireland. Um, <laughs> Ireland, like most places, including the States, it really helps if your family's in politics. And it really doesn't help if your family is not in politics. Yes. Mine, mine had uh, no political involvement. So <laughs> ultimately, I found a different route to, um, to spend time thinking about the intersection of business and corporate reputation and, and public policy and media. A friend of mine left to go get uh, go live in China actually for a couple of years. And she was working for a small, and I mean very small, like a four person public affairs firm in Dublin. And so she said, you know, you should go talk to uh, the woman who runs the firm and see what you think. And I did, and we just hit it off. And then I spent the next couple of years in a dual role. I, I we, we published a, a newsletter every month that went, that was, a, that was a commentary on public policy debates with, and their application to the business community in Ireland. And so we published that as a service to our clients. So in, in sort of half the week, I was a journalist and the other half of the week, huh. um, we represented corporate clients. And in fact, my, my largest client at the time I think was was it's safe to say was the most hated brand in Ireland at the time. It was the British nuclear industry, and this this was it was like big tobacco in Ireland. Oh my uh, goodness! In uh, in the in the late nineties, <laughs> it was the thing that Northern Ireland, the Republic, Scotland, and Wales could all agree about um, that they hated this uh, this this industry and British nuclear fuels that the company that was state owned at the time. And, but it was, you know, no better way to cut your teeth and, and understand, um, get, a, get a very nuanced understanding of some very complicated yeah. subjects, in this case, nuclear power. Um, it, it was a great way for me to get introduced to all of the complexity and the debates uh -huh. that I have been involved in over, yeah. over the subsequent 20 years. And then at some point you hopscotch, at some point then you hopscotch to the United States. 
That's right. Um, I came over in the late 90s, uh, ended up going to DC again, because I wanted to find uh, a place where I could blend politics uh, and business and communications. That's so funny too, that was 90, that was 99. And DC was, was people at every cocktail party I went to were talking about, oh my goodness, it's never been this partisan. Can you believe how rancorous it is? <laughs> um, and, and it was in the waning hours of the second Clinton administration, right before the dot-com bubble burst. And in fact, I, I, uh, I interviewed at Burson Marsteller. Um, so I've had two encounters with Burson Marsteller, as, as Mike pointed out earlier. Uh, before I came to Peru, I led the the, uh, the U.S. corporate practice for, for Burson. But way back in the day, when I first came to the states and settled in D.C., I had a, I had the the most disastrous interview of my career so far, at least, with someone at Burson um, uh, who was wonderful and whose name I think I've blocked out. I can't remember. Uh, she stopped the interview after about fifteen minutes and basically just said, "Well." Let's just let's just level with each other. This isn't the right place for you at this point in your career. I think it was just, funnily enough, too corporate. Anyway, I'm still indebted to her because she was right. Um, and it was a brave move on the part of somebody in the middle of an interview to just call a halt. And what she did, I'm also indebted to her because she put me in touch with a couple of people uh-huh. at Ogilvy. Um, not far away and and a couple of days later i went and met with them and we just and we hit it off and they had an open role and i think about three days after that i started as as a senior account executive uh in the public affairs practice at OVB in dc <laughs> well we hope uh, here's my hope is that you you know you get all of your furniture at some point alan that's <laughs> 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 but really impressive I, I i'm really impressed with what you're doing at prudential and the, the, particularly around the, pro, the processes and how you interact with the world. They're really smart. Well, th- thank you. I, I have the great privilege of working with, with, and I mean this sincerely, one of the best teams in the industry and, and one of the best teams I've ever worked with in, in my entire career. They're just an absolutely phenomenal team. Well, to, to, to sort of round this out, uh, one of the things I've always been impressed uh, with you about, Alan, is that you're such a, an, an active thinker and, and you're also uh, pretty creative for a person who's counseling, uh, you know, business leaders. Um, and just curious as to how you work that through and does it help that you commute by the way, to work on a motorcycle. <laughs> uh, I think it does. Although when I pull <laughs> when I when I pull up at, at security uh, at the Peru building uh, on Broad Street in Newark, I do get some pretty funny looks. And it wasn't something I mentioned in my interview before Peru offered me the job. I'm not sure how the risk management folks at Peru would have felt if, about it had they known. I think creativity has always been incredibly important to me. It's taken many different forms. I think of it. I, I think you can, you can play any role in a communications team. You don't have to be a designer. You don't have to be a videographer. Uh, and this was something I used to, I used to debate pretty actively with some of my colleagues in consumer PR back in the agency world, who I think had a, had a somewhat more narrow view of creativity. Um, and I took issue with that because I really think you can be highly creative in the way that you position an entire corporation. You can be highly creative in the way that you engage employees in the process of transformation. You can do it through words. You can do it through, through actions, through, through signals. There, there's, there's all sorts of ways to flex creative muscles. And I think it's incredibly important that you find your way of doing exactly that. One of the things that, in addition to motorcycling, which I think of as, as therapy on two wheels, and uh, maybe Gary, you feel that way about your bicycling too. <laughs> you know, it takes me away Absolutely. and really sharpens the focus. And I find I have some of my best ideas when I can think about little else other than hanging on to a motorcycle going maybe a little bit over the speed limit through very twisty roads. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I, I, I'm trying to find more space in my calendar this year, the last, it's been tough the past couple of years, obviously it's, it's been tough to travel and so on, but uh, I, f- I get an enormous amount of energy from getting 
out into the world and outside communications in some cases and listening to big thinkers talk about um, what they're expert in. So for instance, uh, next month, I'm going to the Peter Drucker Global Forum in Vienna for a couple of days. Uh, I went in 2019 before everything shut down as a result of the pandemic. And I was just inspired. There's just some of the most creative, most uh, innovative, most forward-thinking uh, thinkers. And I find that, um, that that's enormously helpful to get outside of your own area of expertise. Put yourself in a room where you know the least about all of the topics that everybody else is talking about. I think that's a great place to be. And, and we should do it on a regular basis because it, it, otherwise, you know, we get, we get sort of stuck in our ways. Alan, thank you for uh, being our guest on the Crux. Greatly appreciate your insights relative to ESG, relative to business transformation, uh, as, as well as you sharing uh, a lot of yourself and your expertise as a communicator. It's been our pleasure today to have Prudential Financial's Chief Communications Officer, Alan Sexton, on the Crux. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student Anna Huynh. This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash COM.